0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now, here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. So we're going to pick it up where we left off last week, talking about the cardiogram and uh, prolonged QTC, which is the QT corrected. Sounds a little bit nerdy, but it is an important discussion point because there's so much controversy. So where we start to see concerns around QTC prolongation, it's when we start to get into that yellow zone, it's usually around 450 milliseconds. Where we want to get concerned is usually greater than 500 milliseconds. It's the same thing with women. So women, usually we can push a little bit further, but primarily, you know, if you're getting into the 470 you're going to be a little bit concerned about that as well. Now, what I tend to do, especially at the end-of-life patient, is we don't do a ton of ECGs, but I might, in that patient, offer them some magnesium to help manage a QTC prolongation, especially if we if they're getting a really effective benefit from the medication, Um, The other thing is if they're on other drugs that promote QTC prolongation, we may need to adjust those in order to maximize the methadone for that patient. There are certain conditions, so when we talk about that, so what other conditions can be causing the risk for that prolongation of the QTC? And things like low potassium. And if you've got a low potassium, you're going to have a low magnesium, right? They're linked. In a patient who continues to have this low potassium I always replace the magnesium and then replace the potassium because they're not going to hang on to that potassium if they don't have an adequate store of magnesium. If they're older, they have a higher risk. For whatever reason, women have a higher risk of torsade If they've got advanced heart disease, if they have a congenital or acquired long QT syndrome, so there are populations out there that are fairly young. If there's been a family history of sudden death, often that can be associated with prolonged QTC and the risk of this uh, abnormal cardiac arrhythmia. Uh, if somebody is malnourished, so some of our cachectic anorexic patients that we see in cancer situations, also patients that tend to run very low uh, heart rates. The, probably the biggest offenders, though, are the antibiotics. By far, they're the biggest offenders. And if you think about something even like Bactrim or Cotrimazole, which we use routinely for urinary tract infections, that can actually prolong the QTC. So the biggest offenders that I have seen in, my, in the emergency department have been antibiotics. And typically, these are patients that are not on methadone, but they're on, often on antiarrhythmic medications like procainamide, for example, or sodalol. So the, it's the combination of these medications with antibiotics that seem to increase the risk. So let's look at the facts then. Let's look at this recent Cochrane review, because I do think it's a, it's a pretty interesting thing to look at. So the facts around QTC are still clinically they're de- they're they're still debatable. Even though most of us it ha- we have the fear of God around this this complication associated with methadone. The important thing is that, like we said, it's very rare to see a high QTC generally uh, of more than 500. Not to say that we haven't seen it, um, and the risk of cardiac death is actually very rare. In lots of our palliative care patients, we do use a fair amount of methadone in very low dosing. In our end-of-life patients, uh, because of convenience, but also because we live in a very remote uh, rural community, so getting nursing into homes, especially families that want to keep their loved one at home, it can be very, very uh, effective to use methadone just by spraying it on their cheek to get very effective uh, pain control in a long period delivery system. So um, so yeah it takes that burden of care off families. So these complications I, I mean are extremely rare. I, I've not seen them actually in our palliative care population. I mean I remember when I first started to you know do education around methadone and provide uh, methadone to some of our end-of-life clients as a, as a way to manage their very complex pain. Uh, I was terrified to think about using this medication, but you know, when you have these numbers of years of experience, you start to realize, You know what, if you're using it properly and effectively and you're being careful about how you're adding in things, this drug is fairly safe if it's used in the right way. So this Cochrane review was a 2013. And what they did is they looked at the efficacy and acceptability of QT screening to prevent cardiac-related morbidity and mortality. And they looked at a very unique population. It was the methadone maintenance patients. So we know that these are big doses of methadone. So not the kinds of doses that we tend to see in the palliative care population. And what they did is they did an extensive search of Medline and based on those typical databases that we look at to get information, and they looked uh, at any kind of ongoing trials that looked at this particular problem. So what they were able to find was about 872 pertinent records. And in their findings, they found no evidence has been found to support the use of the ECG for preventing cardiac arrhythmias in methadone-treated opiate dependents. So this was actually a statement that they made in this uh, Cochrane review, and I'll put a link onto our uh, podcast as well. What they also stated was that QTC prolongation is not a safety concern per se, but a sharply imperfect surrogate marker for the risk of torsade de point. A QTC longer than 500 milliseconds, considered the threshold of increased danger, is found in about 2% to 16% of MMT patients, But the prolongation isn't necessarily due to methadone. Other things like liver disease, low potassium levels, and therapies with a variety of drugs also prolong the QTC. So kind of an interesting statement. Uh, This is in the Cochrane Review. Uh, We'll put uh, a link to the online library of Cochrane if you want to have a look at that. Does it mean that I don't uh, screen patients? No. It just means that I kind of take a deep sigh of, of, of relief. And I try and manage the risk with the patient. It never, in our palliative care population, it does not prevent me from using methadone to manage very complex pain. The other barrier the challenge with methadone is a stigma. And this is where we all need to get educated and end the stigma associated with this drug. So there is a lot of fear associated with methadone. There's many myths and misinterpretations that can often perpetuate the stigma. So the common one you'll see is methadone can rot your teeth. And that's very common. But the reality is it's not the methadone per se. Sometimes it's it's the tang that they're adding in, but it's also the fact that methadone can cause dry mouth. Any drug that can dry your mouth can accelerate plaque disease, and that increases your risk of dental caries. So it's really important if we're using methadone in patients that we make sure that they have good uh, oral control, uh, sort of oral hygiene. Sorry, and it's really rare to see the dental problem in our palliative care population because they often get very good uh, oral hygiene. Whereas in our patients with substance use disorder, often they're not taking care of themselves as well. So this is where you start to see some problems around the dental piece, uh, especially patients that are clenching and things like that. So the other thing that, another myth is that methadone gets into your bones and weakens them. That's a myth. Many people believe that you're, especially if you're using it for substance use disorder, that you're substituting one addiction for another. And in fact, that can always be, uh, can people develop an addiction to methadone? They can. It's very rare. But if you're prescribing in a way that keeps that patient safe, that can help to control the cravings, helps that patient develop a better quality of life, and that patient is not, you, does not have other behavior that puts them at risk, these drugs will actually save their life in particular. There's lots of evidence that supports that. Another myth would be methadone damages your body, methadone harms your liver, so there's no evidence that it does that. And uh, methadone can make you gain a lot of weight. This can happen if patients are not as as they normally will, and I find the higher doses in the um, substance use disorder patients or the opiate use disorder patient, if they're too sedated, then they're not moving as much. You won't really see this in the palliative care population, and the other myth is that methadone can cause people to use cocaine, and that is also a myth. There's no evidence to support that. All right, so let's move to the advantages. So there's lots of advantages uh, to methadone in my view, uh, especially as a palliative care physician but also a physician that provides care to patients living with substance use disorders. Some of the advantages is that there's a low incidence of allergic reactions, right, because it's synthetic. So if somebody's got an allergy to morphine or hydromorphone, then often they can tolerate uh, methadone. There is no active metabolites that we we mentioned. Uh, We can use this in patients with renal failure. In fact, it's one of the most common ones that I use as a long-acting opioid in the renal dialysis patient. Uh, Hydromorphone can also be good in that population as well. The other thing that is so cool about this medication is that it can be used in different surfaces. So you can take it in a tablet form, but you can also put it under your tongue. You can spray it on your cheek. Uh, You can actually give it rectally as well, and that sometimes uh, happens. If the patient has an ostomy, you can actually put it in that way. And generally, the liquid is a very low cost. So if cost is a huge problem around some of these very potent uh, opiate analgesics, uh, then methadone may be an alternative uh, because of the cost. Methadone is also the only opioid that I know of that has no active metabolites. So in theory, it shouldn't cause this opiate-induced toxicity. Uh, even fentanyl has one, but it's it's really not as neurotoxic, and that's Uh Morphine has two, as we mentioned. Mepiridine is a, or Demerol is a very, very neurotoxic opiate. And hydromorphone has two as well. So this whole thing around opioid induced toxicity is kind of interesting, but the theory, as we mentioned, so it, it, the etiology or the cause is very controversial, but it is really a paradoxical response to a pain medication in the sense that I'm using a, an opioid to, to manage pain, but here the opioid is actually causing pain. So this is a really paradoxical response to the the opioid. And it, as we mentioned earlier, it was it really felt to be related to this NMD receptor so what the conventional opioid is doing is it's actually stimulating that receptor, whereas methadone is the only opioid that can actually block it. So that's what makes it unique. So what does it look like when somebody gets opioid induced toxicity? We talked a little bit about that in, the, in that case, um, but it really depends. And sometimes it can be really hard to pick up. So these patients that are in intensive care that have come out of really complex surgeries are often intubated, so they're not communicating as well. And when the nurses are doing their care, they often find that the patient recoils or their body seems to recoil. And that's often seen as worsening pain rather than actually a side effect of the opioid, which is opiate-induced pain. So when I have a patient and the nurse says that, look, they won't even let me wash them, it's very, and they just want to give more pain medication, then we start to realize that this is opiate-induced toxicity. So the type of pain that they have is different from what they started with, but their pain needs and the opiate needs often escalate. So that's one of the things that you start to see. There may be that confusion and that twitchiness that we talked about. So some of the disadvantages uh, we've kind of mentioned through the podcast, and one of the biggest ones is that it is a very high-risk opiate analgesic around respiratory depression. And if you look at the data uh, around all opioid, all givers, is that the death rate from overdoses caused by a single prescription painkiller, methadone, is the uh, the one that you want to be most concerned about? So it does have a higher than normal uh, risk of overdose as as a single entity. If the patient is not tolerant, or if somebody has diverted this medication and they're using it and it, they're not on any other opioid, so it's really important that patients lock up these medications. They keep it away from their kids. Now, one of the biggest combinations for mortality actually in our area is actually the combination of Valium and hydromorphone. So you've got a benzodiazepine with an opioid. If you're adding a benzodiazepine into methadone, then that that is a really high-risk situation. It doesn't matter how tolerant that patient is. It's really important to not do that. So, and as we mentioned, the potency of methadone is much greater in smaller doses, and for someone that is very tolerant And they're using it um, in a way that is not being prescribed or under the supervision of a physician. So they're using it non-medically. A lot of uh, individuals feel that two milligrams, five milligrams, that's not much. But in fact, it can be actually a killer. Talked about adding sedation in there, why that is such a problem. Another advantage, but it was a disadvantage in the past, was the fact that we needed a special license to prescribe even though provincially the prescription monitoring will actually control how physicians, not control, but sort of guide physicians around dispensing of opiate analgesics, methadone is a federally regulated drug. So as a physician in Nova Scotia, I can actually write a script for a patient in New Brunswick. Now, if the New Brunswick prescription monitoring has some rules around that, then that may be a blockade. But generally, because this drug is federally regulated, uh, it can actually be written anywhere in Canada. Now I know that Nova Scotia has some some guides in place that uh, if somebody is prescribing from outside the province, they need to go through our prescription monitoring. So I'm sure that is the same way with some other prescription monitoring programs. Yeah, so the other thing that's always challenging and a disadvantage of, of methadone is that there is no standardized protocol how we do the rotations or titrations. And it really just begs to the uniqueness of each patient. What I always find works really well is to go slow. And to really, you can often find the history of the patient. So if a patient had, is very, very sensitive to opiate analgesics and they're needing to be rotated to methadone for a number of reasons, then I would go at a very, very low dose and very, very slow. So if they have a lot of sensitivity to the opiate analgesics, you want to go slow with that patient. Um, So, and uh, there, um, we don't have any parental, that means IV form in Canada. So that can be a challenge uh, if you're managing patients at the end of life and they can no longer swallow. But when you live in a rural and remote community, you often will figure this out. And methadone is a beautiful drug to allow us different types of delivery routes. Physicians can bring in the parental form from Europe, but it's very expensive. And so many of these budgets that we have prevent and preclude us from actually uh, accessing this parentally. We, we've always been very inventive in our community about how we deliver this medication. For the longest time, we would actually just have our pharmacists. Uh, and, and we're talking about a very specific group of patients, actually. I just want to clarify that. We're talking about patients at the end of life who want to die at home, with the support of their family. So these are often patients that require a long-acting medication. If you have access to these very fancy CAD pumps, you also need the nursing support to manage those in the community. In some of our rural and remote communities, we don't have access to sufficient nursing support to uh, use uh, CAD pumps in the community or syringe drivers, which is another way that we can do this. Giving methadone in a atomized form or sublingual or rectal form, actually is a wonderful way of getting a very effective long-acting pain medication, which has a low risk of causing that confusion or that opiate-induced toxicity because of how it's metabolized. Uh, So it's a very, very effective medication, uh, pain medication to use at the end of life. For the longest time, our community did sort of drip it into the mouth. But when patients are unable to swallow, a lot of uh, Healthcare providers and families were very nervous about dripping a solution into somebody's mouth, and we're not talking big concentrations. We usually get our pharmacist to concentrate it down, but most patients at the end of life are not needing big doses of methadone. But what we found is that families would stop it, and of course, that would mean that the person would end up coming into hospital. We weren't able to get them supported at home in their community uh, where they wanted to stay until their death. So what we started to do is to atomize it on the buccal mucosa, and for some reason, People found that easier to do um, than dripping something into somebody's mouth so it felt safer. And so we did a retrospective case series, and this was in 2013 and to 15, using 30 patients. And this was through our palliative care program. And you can access that uh, journal article if you're interested. It's in the Journal of Palliative Care and Medicine. Uh, It's called Effectiveness of Adamized Methadone on the Buccal Mucosa in the Last Days of Life, An Innovative Delivery Route When Patients Can No Longer Swallow. So we were looking at rural community hospital and nursing home. And uh, what, uh, what happened is that the patients that wanted to stay home actually stayed home. And, and there were some patients that actually didn't plan to be home, but were actually quite happy to stay home because their pain was well managed. So it is a really interesting delivery route. And if you want to look at that article, it shows you how we did it. And uh, we also looked at how the family felt about it and also how the healthcare professionals felt about using this mechanism. So we still use this, this as a tool. So who's going to benefit from methadone? And we probably talked about a lot of the patients that we often see who benefit. is often patients with complex pain, patients who cannot afford an expensive long-acting pain medication, patients who have renal failure, patients with pain coexisting with a substance use disorder, and patients with a previous history of a substance use disorder. So often methadone will get their pain much better managed fairly quickly. I think that's uh, probably we're getting close, but I just wanted to mention uh, a really good, good program that you can access uh, online. It's, called, it's through the Canadian Virtual Hospice, and that's a great resource as well if you're ever looking at information about how to support loved ones uh, with uh, life-limiting illnesses. But this course is called Methadone for Pain. That's the number four.ca. and you can actually get credits as a healthcare provider for doing this course. It specifically looks at methadone and pain. It's not looking at methadone and addiction. If you're really interested in methadone and addiction, then I would strongly recommend to take advantage of some of the programs out of the Canadian addiction uh, mental health uh, area, which is the CAMH program. They have some excellent programs that you can access online. If we come back to our patients at the beginning there, I'm just going to uh, mention a few things. So all of those patients are patients that had did well with the conversions, and we were able to kind of get their pain better managed. I'm not going to take you through a methadone rotation. That is really a complex thing. But a few little pearls that I want to share with you around methadone that you might want to know. So a few pearls is that the solution of methadone is very, very bitter. And uh, so ideally, we should be mixing it with sterile water if, concentra- if we're doing the concentrated form from the powder. And this would be our pharmacist that would be doing this. And primarily the reason why you want to do it is that you want to minimize the risk of bacteria growing in that. And we will actually concentrate our methadone 10 milligram per mil or 50 milligram per mil. We tend to go with a premixed uh, 10 milligram per mil, which is quite stable. So you don't have to do, uh, get the pharmacist to do any mixing. Methadone should never be discontinued in a palliative care patient or any patient, regardless of the situation, unless you have a sense that there have been an overdose, especially with other types of medications in the mix. So this would be somebody that I would see in the emergency room. Um, But for patients at the end of life who are using methadone for pain, it's really important that we not stop the methadone. It's very, very difficult to get their pain controlled using conventional opioids, even if you're giving them uh, subcutaneous or intravenous. Yeah, so the other thing you'll often see is that methadone can also be used as a co-analgesic. That means that these are in these complex patients uh, in palliative care. So these are patients that have done well on their conventional opioid, but they're getting near the end of life. And what you can do is add a little bit of methadone, dropping down their conventional opioid and just dropping them down until they get less uh, toxic and more comfortable. All right, so we'll end there. Talk about this subject forever. I find this a fascinating subject. I'm really looking forward to some feedback as well. And uh, it is a hard place to do methadone, but I just want to share with you that this is a drug that is very important. In uh, A lot of people don't realize that we use it for pain, especially in the palliative care. So in summary is that methadone should not be feared. It is something that you should have a healthy dose of respect for. You always need to manage the risk, just like you do with any other types of medication. So I will do pill and solution counts in high-risk patients, especially in the community. We get families to lock up these medications. And when the patient dies at the end of life, we do get them to take the medication back to their uh, pharmacy because obviously some people who are struggling with substance use may actually break into the home when, when you're at the funeral. So it's really important to take any medication that's left over back to the pharmacy. So we'll end there. And uh, I've got another uh, really good podcast coming up in the next couple of weeks with the group out of Alberta. This is Dr. Mike Allen and his group who do a lot of uh, systematic reviews on clinical practice guidelines for primary care. So we're going to dig deep with his group, looking at cannabis, looking at uh, osteoporosis, looking at some guidelines that we can use in our clinical practice. So we're going to end there and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.